Armstrong, and we have for you today an episode with just us. Yay! Gonna keep it nice and intimate. <laughs> no, uh, I cheered that. It's like, <laughs> I'm like, woo! I hate other people. It's not. That's not the case. As we've said before, uh, we will continue with our interviews, but every once in a while, we'll bring it back to just the two of us to focus on a specific topic. Mm-hmm. Um, in our most recent one, we talked about problem definitions and scoping, um, and we've noticed at least that it's come back in a lot of our later episodes, so we're excited to take a stab at our next topic, which is going to be data collection. Yeah, so in the, the problem-solving process, you know, once you get past that problem definition and you're ready to start working, data collection, I think, is a really big part of the problem-solving process and, and the next natural step. And from my perspective in analytics, data collection can mean a couple of things. It could mean you're creating data from scratch, such as through a survey, or you could be pulling existing data from one or more sources. And um, sometimes you do both. You can create data Mm -hmm. and then you can combine it with existing data. If you think about you know, the final data set that you might analyze, you pull everything together into maybe one spreadsheet and you've got the spreadsheet arranged in rows and columns. And on your rows are all of what we might call observations. So maybe every single person that you're analyzing. And then in the columns are what I would call variables, which are all of the features or attributes or metrics about the people maybe ages and cities that they live in and annual income and just all kinds of Mm -hmm. different pieces of information about those people. When we think about data collection, it it takes in both of those dimensions. You have to get your rows together and you have to get your columns together about those rows. So I want to start off talking about how we get the rows. And one important method to understand is sampling. Sampling is what we do when we can't get data on everything that we'd like to have. Consider judging the opinions of an entire country, or even just estimating, say, the average height of people in an entire state. It's not feasible to gather that information manually from every single person. Maybe you could do it, but it would take a lot of resources, and by the time you finished, you might need to start all over again. So rather than throw our hands in the air and say, you know, we'll never know the average height of Iowans because we can't get them all together and figure out and measure all their heights, um, we elect to take samples. And this actually kind of goes back to the t-test that we discussed in the last episode mm-hmm. when we were talking about the importance of Guinness in the history of statistics. We can use statistical tests like the t-test to determine how many observations or people uh, we need in our sample for our results to be statistically significant. The more people we're able to survey, the more confident we can feel about the results because of how those tests work. But it's not just a numbers game. Our sampling methods also have to be good. And that's something I think a lot of people don't really talk about um, outside of statistics. There's lots and lots of types of samples if you really get um, granular with it, but I'll just describe a few that are okay to use good sampling methods and one that's really awful. Uh, So the first good one is called simple random sampling. And maybe you just have a list of everybody in the state and you assign everybody a random number Mm -hmm. and you just like 
pick numbers one through 1,000. Mm -hmm. And if you have done that really randomly, that should get you a representative sample. You're just kind of randomly getting people from across the state and you're going to measure their heights, get the average height. <laughs> okay. And so like the reason we're doing this sampling is let's say we have this many people in the state. We want about this many people in our sample to make it significant. Right. And that number can change depending on what type of sampling you do. Mm -hmm. A second good method is called stratified random sampling. And this is kind of doing what we did with simple random sampling. But first, we're going to make sure that we're pulling a proportional number of people from, say, each age group or gender or some combination of factors that we think are important. So we don't want to just randomly get everybody. Maybe there is actually a minority group that we really want to make sure is represented that might have a small chance of being represented if we just go totally randomly. And, and then we randomly sample from within there. Um, so that's a nice way to make sure we have an equitable sample. There's lots of variations on those two, simple random and stratified random sampling. Um, those are both good to use. And then there's convenience sampling. Just in the name, you can kind of guess that this is the bad one. <laughs> this is really lazy sampling, whoever was the most convenient for the collector to reach. So say a college student gathering, again, the average height of Iowans uh, would do poorly to only survey his fellow students in his dorm, uh, particularly if they're all in the basketball <laughs> team. So um, the issue with this one is that we don't always realize we're doing it though. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a really egregious example, um, but, you know, there's a semi-famous example of this, which was the 1936 presidential election, uh, where pollsters conducted straw polls to estimate the likely winner of the election. Uh, unfortunately, they used lists of phone numbers as one of the primary sources to poll. They said, who are we going to poll? Let's, you know, basically look up the phone book. And this was during a time period when only rich people had phones. And this led to a very biased and inaccurate sample. That's an important factor, you know, what your, your income. So they called the election incorrectly. Similarly, the infamous Dewey defeats Truman headline from 1948 also suffered from a variety of sampling issues, including actually, I didn't know this until I looked it up, missing results from the entire East Coast by the time they went to press. They just straight up didn't have survey results from the East Coast. That, that might affect something. Maybe, just, you know, a lot of, a lot of people there. Even when we're not surveying but using existing data, we can run into some of the same problems. Sometimes our computers can't handle all of the data that we have, so we use sampling methods to bring it down. That's somewhat less of an issue as big data methods become more widespread, but despite what you hear in the news and talk about on Google search trends and everything, it's not ubiquitous that everybody just has big data databases and platforms and software that can churn through billions of rows. Right. Like butter churn? I don't know where I was going with that, but <laughs> not ubiquitous. So building off of that, I want to talk a little bit about data availability and some of the limitations on data. And of course, this will come from more of the public side of things, mm -hmm. the planning side of things, but a lot of it does cross over. So a lot of people are familiar with the census. Mm-hmm. That is done every 10 years. So many resources are poured into it, and there's a little bit of concern now that we may end up no longer doing 
a full census, Mm -hmm. you know, resources to that initiative have been cut back. So we use census data for a lot of things from very basic things of like determining what the population of a city is. A lot of things depend on knowing what your population is. So a lot of statewide or federal funding has disbursement formulas that are based on population. So you want to know how many people you have in your town. There's a lot of issues with only getting that data every 10 years, Mm -hmm. right? So much changes over that time. So one thing that's kind of filled in the gap is the American Community Survey, which I'll just call ACS from now on. Mm -hmm. So this samples a lot of the things that the census would do every 10 years. Mm -hmm. The ACS is measured more frequently, and you can pull samples over a span of years to help Mm -hmm. improve that data significance. So you can do a three-year ACS or a five-year. So you can pull, Mm -hmm. you know, 2005 to 2009. You can pull these uh, samples, and again, it gets at that sort of demographic data. A lot of the things that we use to provide our foundation of data and knowledge of our communities. So when we're looking at a transportation corridor, census data and ACS data can tell us about income levels and how many are carless households or Mm -hmm. households with a single parent or ages so we can tell like hey we need to focus on these sorts of strategies because there's a much older population here Mm -hmm. and so that changes some of the things that we would look at well and if you think about like hurricane katrina hit in what 2005 Mm -hmm. and so if you had to wait another five years to get census data you know and you're trying to make responses like you need that more frequent data and this is foundational data to everything that we do like the demographics matter a great deal and you know we pull that constantly there's similar data that's more specific so this year we finally have a new national household travel survey data set so i'm going to call that the nhts sure which is also not done every year It is sample data, but they do a lot of survey work based on people's transportation habits. Mm -hmm. Um, So they'll do travel diaries of, for this week, how did you get around for these types of trips? It'll dig in so much deeper than even the census does. Mm -hmm. Because the census will ask you, how do you most frequently get to work? You know, if somebody drives three days to work and bikes two days, all it marks down is one person driving. (laughs) So when we talk about mode share, like how many people in Des Moines ride a bike? Mm -hmm. The only data we have outside of the NHTS is we know, oh, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but say like 1.7% of people bike to work. Mm -hmm. And that is only people who bike more than three days a week. And it is only for work trips. Now we know from other data sets and sampling and other work that we've done, we've sort of fact-checked this, we know that commute trips are actually a pretty small proportion of people's total trips. Hmm. So again, this whole data is very skewed just on the, like what we have. These are our limitations that we have and um, we have to work around. So the NHTS is hugely valuable, but again, it doesn't come out all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to pay extra to get them to do a larger sample for your region. Yeah. So we paid extra for the Des Moines region to add a few additional questions to the survey and also for them to do a more intensive look Mm -hmm. at our region. So we're really excited to have that new one. 
other things that we have that we sort of try to fill in these gaps. Surveys, either annual citizen satisfaction surveys, most cities in definitely our region, I believe all of Iowa kind of do this. Um, mm-hmm. So once a year they'll have the generally the same set of questions. They'll just get a check-in of like, how do you think we're doing? Hmm. We'll also do survey work for specific projects or initiatives. You know, we're going to work on this corridor, so we're going to put out this money to do a phone survey, or we'll do intercept surveys, like stop people on the street or Mm -hmm. on the bus, you know, or go to door to door or be at events, you know, however you want to do it. But we also have these shorter term, more immediate data points. So if you want to have an impact on your community, don't just brush off the maybe at first irritating (laughs) intercept survey people. Right. So, I mean, this is one of the huge limitations that I wanted to talk about. So we think about polling data, Mm -hmm. I think is really interesting. So they call you up and say, you Mm -hmm. know, what are your sentiments on this, this, and this? Who are you going to vote for? How do you feel about this candidate? Mm -hmm. There's a bias in the type of person who is willing to take that call and answer that. Oh, yeah. Um, So again, when we think about this, we know that for any planning project, and I would say this is true probably also in a lot of other places as well, is just people are going to show up and people are going to provide feedback when they do not like something. Yep. It's really hard to get people to show up and say, this all looks good and I like it. Mm -hmm. But if there's a change that some people are really mad about, they will definitely make sure you hear about it. Mm -hmm. So... It's very easy to get um, very strong vocal minorities. So we have to kind of parse that out of. uh, So let's say Des Moines has a city council meeting. Mm -hmm. You get 30 people who show up very angry about Mm -hmm. a proposed policy. That's a really good turnout for a public meeting. You know, it's hard for people to make time and show up in that sort of fashion. But it's also 30 people out of 200,000. So it's very difficult for these types of things to figure out. We've heard from these community members, and it is important, and it should shape our decision. But we need to try to keep in mind sort of the sample of this data. You kind of have to weight it appropriately, follow up on this. We'll do additional research and see how all the other people <laughs> feel or or more people feel because that's another response bias. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, who's going to respond to phone surveys, mail surveys, all that stuff. Yeah, so we have this big picture data of, you know, census, ACS. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some of this small picture data of community engagement and public feedback. And then we have sort of a mid-tier, like, technical data. A lot of the cities in our region have traffic cameras up so you know we have traffic counts for all of our roads and we have pavement condition data Mm -hmm. for all of our roads we have housing data from a number of different sources and we have similar data that we get from partners you know public health data from the county health departments economic data from the partnership or chambers of commerce like these all sort of pull into Mm -hmm. projects as they fit But those are kind of the three main buckets that I see for data. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and I'm so glad you brought up a lot of the things that you did because they're a really good transition to my next point, which, you know, when you're working on an analysis or you're working on a problem, you have to think about 
what's the relevant kind of data to use. And we can often get very trapped in our normal patterns of thinking and our go-to sources for things, but you just listed a whole ton of sources of of mostly public, publicly Mm -hmm. accessible data that anybody could get at any time and, and maybe find relevant to their analysis. And not having that data can really bias an analysis. There's a statistical meaning to the word bias. I mean, in in a statistical context, bias really means that if you're trying to draw the line that best fits a, a scatter plot of dots, that line will be at the wrong angle if you're missing relevant data, and that's statistical bias. And just like we don't always know that we're convenience sampling, we don't always know that we're missing important data and then we're missing important variables or, or columns. And so that was the other thing I wanted to talk about was kind of, you know, how we go about thinking about the data that's important to use. You know, we rarely pull down every single thing that's available to us, right? Mm-hmm. Because where would you stop, right? Especially if you really start opening to your, your eyes to everything that's available out there. It's actually not feasible from a mathematical perspective, even if you had all the computing power in the world, there's actually something called the curse of dimensionality in analytics, which sounds so dramatic. And like, maybe I'll go as that for Halloween or something this year because it's so... But it basically means that the, the basic math behind most analytics breaks if you have more columns than you have rows just the way that linear algebra works and and what you have behind it, you have to have more rows than you have columns when you're doing this kind of analysis. So if you have five people and you're trying to do some analysis on them, but you have 20 different variables, the math can't tell the difference between which of those variables is important. It's kind of like if you think back to maybe middle school math and you have a system of equations, you have to have as many equations as variables as you're trying to solve for, right? Mm, if, mm-hmm. you, if you're trying to figure out what X and Y are, you need at least two equations to figure out the relationship between those those variables. And that's very similar for, for this kind of thing. You can't tell what's contributing to the changes in those five people if you've got too many variables. The math just simply breaks. Okay, so we can't look at everything. So we can't look at everything. So you have to narrow it down, um, but you don't want to miss things that are important. And there are some things you can do where you can combine variables, and there's some stuff that's just like, I don't care what color socks you wore, that's not important. Maybe I know it, don't need to. It comes back to generally theory. We tend to start with going back to that good problem definition, working with business stakeholders, and trying to maybe get beyond just your own head and your own gut inclinations and have good theoretical grounding for the variables and the the data that you are going to use. Now, there's still the issue of, you know, not having data and not knowing that you don't. But again, I think you know, kind of just talking to people and researching and spending time with your problem is, is the best way to avoid that. Another thing that is kind of interesting in this space is that there may be data that you do have, and that actually may be important and statistically powerful, but you're legally not allowed to use it. Mm. So depending on your industry, like take the financial industry, for example, 
I agree with this, like, it's not legal to make a credit decision based on someone's sex. That may actually have predictive power, but it's just not legal. So yeah, I mean, really just being guided by business knowledge, sometimes by legal regulations, and then really just document assumptions, I think is another key thing to do here. So, you know, if this is an in-depth analysis, explain why you're using the data that you're using, even if it's just to explain it to yourself so you can remember six months later, so that if something new does become available, you you understand you didn't have it at the time. But Yeah, and it's another good way of getting back at that bias, whether intentional or unintentional, of mm-hmm. if you have to explain why, you can look at it after the fact. And, you know, once you get a chance to sort of ground truth some of this, you can say, these don't actually match up. Let's look at what variables we chose and see why. Oh, and, and that was the other thing I, I missed, um, proxy. So if, if if you are missing data and you know you're missing it, you might say that another piece of information you have is not exactly what you're looking for, but it's close. So a lot of times people might use zip code in favor of a lot of things <laughs> um, that they're not able to get. And so they're using it as a proxy. And that, I think, is a really important time to document your assumptions and you're saying, well, you know, we we don't have the data that we want. And again, rather than just throwing our hands in the air and saying we'll never do this, we've chosen to use zip code because we believe, you know, census data tells us that it strongly correlates with income or education levels or whatever. Yes. And today is not the last time we will talk about data collection, for sure, in a lot of these topics. I would love to talk to you more about contextual bias in data and how mm-hmm. we choose variables. So the last thing that I wanted to talk about building off of that is community engagement. So I think it's a pretty unique sort of data collection for my field. Mm-hmm. It's only not something I do. <laughs> um, and people do versions of it. I mean, you reach out to stakeholders within the business and that kind of thing. But it's a huge part of planning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a huge part of our theory in planning and practice. And it's not something that is sort of universally agreed on either of how we do it, when we do it, and what manner we do it. And so... I imagine we're going to talk a lot more about community engagement mm-hmm. throughout this podcast, but uh, today I wanted to start with sort of an introductory piece. I've been okay. getting jealous of the cool names and theories that you've been throwing <laughs> out. So They're so cool. Uh, yeah. So I went back to sort of the basics for this. So we're going to start with the ladder of public participation. So this was published by Sherry Arnstein in uh, 1969. So it's been around mm-hmm. for a little while. And I think a lot of these pieces have been used in other fields as well. But this is what I know. She took an interesting look at this. She essentially chose a variable to focus on for public engagement. You know, there's a lot of different ways we can do it, and it's all complex and muddy together. She kind of cut through all of that by focusing on citizen power. Hmm. This is the measurement she's using as you move up the ladder public participation. There are three general tiers and eight rungs of this ladder. So the first two rungs of the ladder are manipulation and therapy. So these are both essentially non-participation in her eyes. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I agree with a lot of this, but, you know, manipulation and therapy are kind of like PR. Um, So this would be like a rubber stamp 
committee. This would be ways of engaging with sort of powerless communities without any sort of meaningful impact on decision making. So therapy, just like letting people vent kind of an idea, like but not really doing anything about it? Uh, yeah, or like having government programs or social workers or these other things that are kind of working with these powerless groups and maybe educating and hearing from them, but it's pacifying. So to move into what a lot of people would say is actual engagement. So the next tier is tokenism. Hmm. And... A lot of people have argued that tokenism and the final tier as well, these rungs all have validity and purpose, but you need to be delivered in which one you're choosing. Okay. So for tokenism, um, which has a very negative connotation, Mm -hmm. the first one is informing. Again, this is very Mm. one way. There's Mm -hmm. no sort of feedback loop or anything like that, but say there's going to be a detour on this road. You need to inform the public. You're not really looking for, you know, empowering citizens in this when it comes to like the policy of how you do detours maybe but if you're just saying we have the farmer's market up this weekend this road is closed you inform and you know that can be an important step but for a lot of things you don't want it to be just that right right so moving up from that is consultation surveys public meetings you know you go out, you ask citizens specific things, and then you take them under advisement and it informs your work. The final one of this tier is placation. So this would be, say, a steering committee of mostly citizens that advise decision makers. Mm. So, you know, this is set up like a technical steering committee for this project, and they can be like, hey, city council or city staff, we recommend this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. And then city can do with that what they will. So that's our second tier. Final tier is citizen control. So this is the highest three rungs on the ladder. So we have partnership, citizens, and the authority, the decision-making body, whether that's city council or something else. They negotiate for shared power. This is both in the planning stages and in the decision-making stages. They work together to determine who's responsible for what, who has authority over what, but it's not a given that it's the authority that has all of the power and the citizens that are just advising. Like, there is shared responsibility and power there. Okay. Moving up from that is delegation. So a way to picture this is that same steering committee that is mostly citizens, but they are a decision-making committee. Okay. So they have the authority over the decision, and citizens have the majority of that. And there may be staff or elected officials on there as well. Mm -hmm. And then finally, citizen control. So all stages are controlled by the citizens themselves. Mm -hmm. So this could be, say, a neighborhood corporation where there's no intermediaries between them and funding. So, you know, they have direct line to their funding. They get to control how that money is spent, you know, what sort of planning goes in place, where the decision Mm -hmm. points are. So that's kind of the full ladder there so it kind of reminds me of like is it maslow's hierarchy of needs like it's not so much that the bottom rung is like a bad place to be and i guess in true form of a ladder you have to climb up the bottom rungs to get to the top it's not like you're trying to get away from the bottom per se it's just building on itself to get to the top yes and no i think a lot of planners and certainly you know sherry would argue that those first two rungs are worthless okay 
sort of the non-participation. Not only is it not participating, but it's also wasting people's time and resources. So it's like a ladder where the first rung is like two inches off the ground and you really don't need it. Right. <laughs> and that middle tier, or let's talk about both the better tiers or like the higher tiers. They have different time commitments. They have different purposes, you know. If we tried to do every decision in the city through partnership or delegation or citizen control, there's not enough time and resources to do. So at times, informing or consultation may be the right moves or Mm -hmm. maybe the right moves for that part of the project or policy or initiative. Mm -hmm. But too often, the citizen control parts of it, those higher three rungs, kind of rare. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, it sounds like really direct government at that point. There's a lot of that. And even just with advisory committees, it is rare for anybody to give up authority. Mm-hmm. You don't know where it's going to go. So, you know, you can have this very representative citizen committee, you know, if you're doing delegation. And you can have staff and electeds on there and help influence it, but that's very scary. Mm -hmm. So we don't often see that. So it's interesting to me when we talk about public engagement for specific projects at the MPO or in other places to, again, have that sort of deliberate thought process of not just are we going to engage, but how are we going to engage in a way that creates the best possible product that we want, but also helps sort of the long-term relationship that we Mm -hmm. have. The more involved and informed and empowered the target audience is, so whether Mm -hmm. that's a neighborhood or a city or a region, the better set up they are for the next decision. Mm -hmm. But you have to balance it with limitations on time, resources, Mm -hmm. interest level, all these different pieces. Well, and I imagine that doesn't just happen by taking your earlier example of the the 20 people that show up to a Des Moines City Council meeting and taking just that 20 people up this ladder, right? You know, know, it's not going to achieve what you want and it's going to get into that contextual bias of the data that you're collecting through that engagement. Yeah, so there's certainly other frameworks. I mean, she focuses on citizen power. Other people have different key factors. There's like any sort of theory, there's critiques and responses to it. But this is one that's lasted quite a long time and, you know, is sort of a foundational piece for planning. And I know that community engagement is something that is not often well understood Mm -hmm. by (laughs) non-planners. So I wanted to start off with that and work our way through some of the theory behind it. Yeah, we'll have to talk about that more because I'm Yeah. (laughs) Like, oh man, my head is spinning. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode on data collection. Like Mike said earlier, we'll we'll get back into interview episodes at some point. Um, It's been a bumpy ride since the the floods of this summer. We lost our recording space. It's a little harder for us to ask people to come into our wrecked basement and and do interviews until we get that back up and running. But we, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, you know, please rate and review us on 
iTunes. Um, it really helps us reach out to a broader audience. We actually had somebody on Twitter say like, hey, can you... Somebody tell me if the show is good. <laughs> yeah, we've started to have a few yeah. interactions with people on Twitter um, and other places, which is awesome. So as you're listening, if there's something you want to know more about, either from what we've already talked about or something we haven't covered, please tell us, let us know. We're going to have more of these episodes in the future, sort of interspersed with interviews, and we would love to make sure they're topics that interest you and we can dive deeper into certain things as well. Absolutely. So you can find us on Twitter at blbdpod, and uh, you can connect with us on there. We also have a Facebook page, which should hopefully be going public sometime soon whenever I finish it. Uh, You can also just email us at brightlightsbigdata at gmail.com. And you can also find us, our episodes, on our website, blbdpod.com. So that's it for this week. This has been Bright Lights Big Data. Until next time. (music) 